Today's text is from Matthew, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. God, you breathed and the stars were created. Earth is just a speck of dust in your universe. And yet you sent your son here to build a kingdom, a kingdom for those who believe, for those who are baptized, for those who died and were buried and were resurrected with Christ into something bigger than your universe. God, I, I pray today that uh, you would help us to see who we are as children of God who were born into this new family. God, I, I pray that, uh, uh, that Josh, uh, the words that Josh would share with us today uh, would disciple us, would uh, help us to go out into the nations, into the world, into our communities, Lord, and um, and share your love, share your um, your presence, and all of who you are, your peace with others. I pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. It's not a typo in the bulletin today. <laughs> if you're like, hey, wait a second. This is the passage from last week. It is a passage from last week, but we're going to, I want to cover just one phrase in this passage that has to do with baptism. If you remember, we've been in a current, we've been in a series for a number of weeks now where we have been looking at uh, the church and not the church universal. That's a phrase that's used to describe the church, every believer that's ever lived or ever will live in any time or any place in the history of the world, we're not talking about that. We're talking more about the local church, the local body. One phrase we've come back to over and over again out of Romans chapter 12 is this idea that, that we are one body and individually we are members of one another. One body, right? That, was, that, was, that letter was written to the church at Rome. One body and individually, lots of people, we are members of one another. And so we've looked at how this plays out, how this works out in the context of a local church where there's, there's committed fellowship and self-giving to one another and doing life together. So you might wonder, well, how does baptism fit into this? And it does, of course, Historically, at least since the time of the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, it's been commonly accepted that there are three non-negotiable things that a church must have if it is a true church. 
There's lots of other things the church does. There's lots of other things that we engage in. But there's three things that are non-negotiable. You, you take one of these away, and all of a sudden you don't have a New Testament church. The three things are biblical preaching from God's word. The word being opened up and read and explained and preached. The second thing is church discipline or somehow dealing with unrepentant, ongoing sinful behavior and individuals. And the third is the faithful administration of the ordinances that Christ has given. So two weeks ago, we talked about the Lord's Supper. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he, he ordained that his disciples would, as, as, as often as they got together, they would proclaim the Lord's death in the taking of the bread and the cup. And of course, the other ordinance that Christ gave is baptism. And so what I want to do is I just want to really quickly, like in three minutes, give you the bullet points of what we believe about baptism. And, and then I want to jump into a, one particular phrase here in Matthew 28 in what is commonly called Jesus' great commission to his, to his disciples. So quickly, here's what we believe about baptism. Bullet points, okay? We believe baptism is an ordinance given by Jesus, okay? We see that in Matthew 28, and we see throughout the book of Acts that the disciples, the early church, followed this ordained principle or ordained commandment that Christ gave. Second, we believe, or I should say we practice what could be called credo-baptism, okay? Credo-baptism is credo, the Latin word for belief or believe, we believe and we practice that believers are baptized. Once someone repents and puts their confidence and trust in Christ, then they are to be baptized. And again, I think we see this all throughout the book of Acts. The, from, the, from the day of Pentecost, when the, when, when the people said upon hearing Peter's message, what shall we do to be saved? Peter said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, and we see this again throughout the book of Acts. We see over and over again that upon repentance and faith, people are baptized. Third, we practice baptism by immersion. And we believe in serious immersion here, okay? I and mean, we, keep, we keep people under the water for a good 10 seconds. No, I'm joking. We don't do that. I'm joking, all right? Kids, I'm joking. But we do believe in baptism by immersion. Again, I think, we, I think we see this throughout the book of Acts. We see this in the, bap, the, the practice of John the Baptist when he baptized uh, with a baptism of repentance in lieu of Christ coming on the scene. And I think we also, we also understand this from the, uh, the symbolism of baptism, which is being buried with Christ and raised with Christ to newness of life. And finally, we believe that baptism, the, the ceremony of baptism, when, when you see someone getting dunked underwater, going down and coming back up, we believe that ceremony is an external sign of a believer's union with Christ in his death, in his resurrection, that they experience by faith when they trust him. Okay? So, in a nutshell, that's what we believe about baptism. Okay? 
And so what I want to do with the remainder of our time, I want to draw your attention today to what I think is an often overlooked but deeply significant phrase, and it's this, that baptism is to be done in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is to be done in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. It's so fitting. And I didn't, I didn't ask Alyssa to sing this song, but it's so, so fitting we sang, praise the Father, praise the Son. Our attention was drawn to the triune God that we worship, the Father, Son, and Spirit. Three persons, one God. We are to, we are to, be, we are to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you know, before we go any further, if you are sitting here thinking, well, I've already been baptized, and I think I remember being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, please do not check out. Do not check out today. So much of the New Testament, so much of, of what Paul and Peter and John and James write to us are good reminders I remember long ago hearing somebody say, and this is an overstatement, but it, but it was a point well taken. He said the most important word in the New Testament is remember. Remember, because we forget. So don't check out, all right? If you've been baptized, many of you, most of you have been. If you've been baptized since you've trusted in Christ, do not check out. This is going to be a good reminder of all the significance of that. So what is the significance of being baptized in the name? Notice singular, the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. I want to flesh out three things that I think it means, okay? One, baptism in the triune name of God. We're baptized in the triune name of God because we are saved and given life by the Father, Son, and Spirit working in perfect harmony together. Second, baptism in the triune name of God means that we bear the name of God and are called to a new walk, walking in newness of life. And third, baptism in the triune name of God unites us with others who have been saved by the same God and bear the same name of God. Let's just, let's just work through these, all right? And li listen, this always happens, well, almost always happens. I have been so blessed thinking through these things. And I just, I just want that to be imparted to you today. It's powerful. Baptism is in the triune name of God because we are saved by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together, united in purpose. When someone's baptized, the emphasis is usually put almost exclusively on Christ, right? And this is not without some warrant, of course. The ceremony of baptism symbolizes our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. But when the risen Lord Jesus, the universal, unconquerable Lord with absolute authority. When he rose from the dead, he commissioned his disciples to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. 
The command is to baptize in the the name, the singular name of the only true God who exists in three persons. The triune God of the scriptures. There's a catechism that we have gone through as a family and we're working our way, starting, starting to work our way through it again, the New City Catechism. And there's a question that is so basic, so simple, but so helpful. How many persons are there in God? The answer, there are three persons in one God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. There are three co-equal, co-eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, and yet they are one God. This is a great mystery that we go as far as the Bible takes us and no further, (laughs) all right? And it is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit working together in perfect harmony, perfect unity to bring about our salvation. This is no side issue. This is no issue out there on the edges that has very little significance. This has eternal significance, great significance. This is not an issue akin to trying to discern how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. No, this is massively important. And we know it's massively important because Jesus said, make disciples and then baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is a truth that is so essential to our knowledge of God and to our joy in God. Michael Reeves, who's a theologian, from the UK said the following. He said, it is only when you grasp what it means for God to be a trinity that you really sense the beauty, the overflowing kindness, the heart-grabbing loveliness of God. God is triune and it is as triune that he is so good and desirable. Which is why we're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. This is who our glorious God is. And it is God as Trinity working in perfect oneness, perfect unity to save sinners that makes baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit so significant. I read a book about five years ago, four or five years ago, um, that it was on the Trinity. And it wasn't this... It wasn't this um, overly intellectual book or anything. It was deeply devotional. It was a great book. But it pointed out over and over again in the New Testament where the Father, Son, and Spirit are brought together in, the, in, in our salvation and in prayer and in our sanctification, all of these ways. And it was so powerful. And when you see this, you'll begin to see it everywhere in the New Testament. Not everywhere, but over and over again. So I want to take a look at a passage that has become one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, which lays out for us this dynamic so clearly, so wonderfully. And Alyssa and David, we sang about it. They prayed about it. It's about our adoption. 
It's found in Galatians 4, verses 4 to 6. And it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God the Father sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Father, the Son, the Spirit working in unison. To what end? For our adoption into God's eternal family. What comes to mind when you think of being a child of God? What comes to mind? Does it blow you away that you're a child of God? Have you become far too used to being a child of God? Or does it still stun you? I'm reminded of what J.I. Packer wrote in his classic Knowing God. He said, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he or she makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls this person's worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Galatians 4, 4 to 6 is one of those central passages that shows us what God does in order to bring sinful rebels into his family and makes them beloved sons and daughters forever. So, first, we see the Father who's the source of all and eternally gracious. What does he do? In the fullness of time, right, at just the right time, he sent forth his son. I love that language, sent forth. He doesn't just send him, he sends forth his son. Our salvation is initiated by the Father. Any view of, that says that the kind Son, the kind and loving Son came to placate the quick-tempered and easily irritable Father is not Christianity. It is pagan. has nothing to do with the Christian faith. To be sure, God is holy the Father is holy and he cannot look on sin. He will punish all evil and sin, no doubt. And how could he do otherwise if he is truly good? But it was the Father himself who in love sent the Son in order that the Son might do all that was necessary to uphold the Father's glory and to pay the penalty for our sins. God the Father sent the Son on a mission to redeem many sons and daughters. Next, we see the Son, our Redeemer, who left his glorious place in heaven. We sang it earlier. He was born in the dirt, right? He left his glorious place in heaven to be born of a woman, 
Galatians 4 says, which speaks of the incarnation of Christ, that the eternal Son of God became flesh, took on our nature, became like us in every single way, except one massively important way. He never sinned. Other than that, he became like us in every way. And he became like us in every way so that he could be the kind of Savior that we need. The perfect Redeemer and Mediator. The only Mediator between God and men. It says in Galatians 4 again that he was born under the law. He came to fulfill the law perfectly for lawbreakers like you and I. He came to save lawbreakers. Unless you think, yeah, I used to break the law, you still do. <laughs> you still need the perfect obedience of Christ. Right? Born under the law to perfectly keep the law for you and I. I remember reading about uh, a theologian in the 20th century named J. Gresham Machen, and he was on his deathbed. And I think, he sent, I think it was a telegram that he sent. And he sent it to a friend, and his last words, his last recorded words were, I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. There is no hope without it. Meaning the active obedience of Christ, that he was obedient to the law in every way, at every step. And his active obedience to the law is given to lawbreakers when we trust him. I want you to notice the harmony here. Again, the Father sends, the Son comes and redeems. Jesus was not some unwilling participant being sent on an errand that he didn't want to go on by the Father. He came willingly. Christ loves the Father and always does what pleases him. And the Father loves the Son and loves that the Son so willingly does his will. Listen to the words of Christ in John 10, verses 17 and 18. Jesus said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the, the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. Then listen to what he says. This charge... I received from my Father. The Father sent him, and he came, and he willingly laid his life down to please his Father and to save sinners. The Father sent the Son. The Son came willingly to lay his life down to redeem many sons and daughters. And last but certainly not least, we see the Holy Spirit here in Galatians 4. The indwelling comforter, who makes the truths of the gospel come alive in our hearts. Because of the work of Christ to make us God's children, it says that God the Father sent the Spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit gives this internal indwelling witness that we are God's children. He makes this truth come alive in us so it's not just 
objective truth outside of us, which is really important, by the way, objective truth outside of us, but it's something that we experience in our hearts, that God is real, that Christ died for me, that I am a son or daughter of God. And notice again the unity. The Father sends the Spirit who is called the Spirit of the Son. I love that language. There's, almost, there's a passage that's almost exactly the same in Romans 8 where it says, you have not received a spirit of, fear, a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit of the Son, the spirit of adoption, the spirit of Christ. There's one person Besides Galatians 4 and Romans 8 where it says we as God's children have the privilege of calling out to God, Abba, Father, there's only one other person that actually does that. Do you know who it is? It's Christ. Only Jesus. Only Christ. Only Je- we, we only hear from the lips, we only hear these words from the lips of Jesus in the Gospels. He calls out to God, Abba. And when the Spirit is poured into our hearts, It's like we get to share in the sonship of Christ himself. We get to share in the status of Christ, the eternal son, which I think is why John 17 says, as the father loves me, even so he loves you. Or he says, father, as you love me, even so you love them, I think is how he, because it's in his prayer. The Spirit causes us to rejoice in the Father as our Father. It's not just words. It's not just an idea. It's not even just objective truth, like it's true whether I believe it or not, no doubt. But the Holy Spirit makes it true in us, our lived ex- our experience. When one is baptized, he is baptized in the name of the Father, who is their Father, And the Son, who is their Redeemer, who purchased them for God, and in the Holy Spirit, who indwells and cries, Abba, Father. That's why baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit is so significant. But there's more. The second aspect I think is significant is the reality of being baptized, the the, the words, in the name. We're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Not just in the Father, Son, and Spirit, but in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. The word baptize, the Greek word baptizo, means to immerse or to be dipped. And so the ceremony of baptism, when it takes place and someone's baptized in water, they're immersed in water and they come up wet. That's just a freebie for you today, okay? That's just, that's just the way it works, right? When we're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we're immersed in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. What does that mean? I think it means this, that we now belong to God and we bear his name. 
Again, the first question in the New City Catechism, what is our only hope in life and death? Some of you maybe know the answer to this. That we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Is that... Is there a conviction in you that I am no longer my own? I belong to him. When one is baptized in the triune name of God, they are being marked as gods. It's like this invisible tattoo that's being put on them. They belong to God now. They bear his name. J.I. Packer wrote in his little excellent book, Concise Theology, he said, baptism into the name of the triune God signifies control and direction by God himself. We are now under his control and we are now submitted to his direction. Now, of course, with this comes blessing, immense blessing. Alyssa, the word blessing, we sang about the blessing, right? With this comes immense blessing, but also responsibility. With this comes great privilege and also duty. It's not one or the other. It's not just duty. It's not just blessing. It is blessing and duty, Think about the blessing of bearing God's name. I want you to think about this. We sang this earlier. The blessing. The most well-known benediction in the Bible is out of Numbers chapter 6. When I give a benediction at the end of the service, this is one of them that I will speak over you. It's Moses gave, or, sorry, the Lord gave Moses instruction to tell Aaron and his sons Speak this over the people of Israel. You guys know how it goes? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's verses 24 to 26. Do you know what the very next verse is? It's so cool. Check this out. Here's what verse 27 says. This is God speaking. He says, Moses, tell Aaron and his sons to do this. Speak this blessing. And then he says this. So shall they, Aaron and his sons, put my name on them and I will bless them. God says they will put my name, my covenant name, Yahweh, upon the people. And God says, and I will bless them. Bearing God's name, wearing his name, means being the blessed covenant people of God. We were singing that song. I just was weeping because God is so, I was like thinking, Lord, You put this blessing on us. You bless us. You bless us. It's not just that we need to understand this blessing, but we also need to remember, I didn't do anything to deserve it. Nothing. If he gave me what I deserved, I would be cast away. 
If you, O Lord, the psalmist said, Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sin, who could stand? None of us could. God pours out blessing upon us. We are blessed beyond comprehension. When I hear some people talk about needing to get, you know, to to step into this place of God's favor or God's blessing, usually there's a a sales pitch attached with that, right? Pay 50 bucks, you'll get a book and we'll tell you how or something. What more could we ask for than what James 1 says, every good and perfect gift? What more could we ask for than every spiritual blessing, Ephesians 1? What more could we ask for than Romans 8.32? All things with Christ. Richard Sibbs, he was a pastor from the 17th century in England. He wrote the following. He said, we are only poor, poor, spiritually poor for one reason, that we do not know our riches in Christ. And you can have buku bucks, all kinds of stuff, all kinds of opportunities and privileges that the world affords to you. And if you don't know the true riches you have in Christ, then you are a pauper. We have great blessing because we've been baptized in the name And God has put his name on us and blessed us. But bearing the name of God also comes with responsibility. It comes with duty. Far too many professing Christians live as though they still had possession of themselves. As though they were their own. Being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit means that there is a change in ownership of you, body and soul, in life and death. It tells us whose we are, right? It tells us who we belong to now. We belong to God. We belong to the glorious, only true and living God. He says, I'm your God. And you're my people. It also tells us who we are. We are God's very own people who are now called to live for his glory, which means it matters how we live because we bear his name. Our lives are to be marked by loyalty to God. The God who saved us. Listen to how Paul puts this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is a passage where Paul is specifically talking about sexual immorality, but you could apply this across the board. Okay, so he's, he's addressing a particular sin, sexual sin, but you could apply this broadly. Listen to what he says. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. And then he says this, you are not your own. So glorify God 
in your body. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. What's ultimately required, I think, of Christians bearing the name of God, I think is summed up well in Colossians 3.17, where Paul says, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything or do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, eating and drinking, getting up and going to work, making breakfast or lunch for your children, worshiping together as a church, witnessing to your neighbor, whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God through him. So being baptized in the name of the triune God brings with it immense privilege and blessing, but also serious duty and responsibility. Think of, think of what, it, what it would be like to be the king's son or daughter. <laughs> the opportunities afforded to you that, you know, the, the, priv- the blessing given to you, the riches that would be yours, but also the duty and responsibility. How much more? The fact that we bear the name of the God of heaven and earth. Third, the third aspect I want to flesh out quickly is this. When you are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, you're joined with other people, saved by the same God, and who bear the same name. We are joined to others in this new humanity, this new race. It's interesting how this so many this language and this new race. First Peter two, you are a chosen race, a new race of people in Christ. You're joined with them. We're joined with all these people. We're joined in this new covenant people called the church. We're joined to one another in a mystical way by the Holy Spirit, but also in a very tangible way, very hands-on way by our committed fellowship and service to one another. Historically, baptism has been seen as an emblem or a sign that one is part of the visible church. Look again at what Jesus said. He said, baptizing them. Who's them? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Who's the them? It's disciples, new disciples. Upon trusting in Christ, baptizing them. So when you have disciples who have been baptized in the triune name of God, saved and bearing his name, and then you have new disciples who get baptized in the triune name of God and bear his name, they're joined together. They're joined together. Baptism, the ritual or ceremony, the the outward ceremony is an outward sign of being joined with all other disciples who are likewise baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
course, of course, we're joined with all Christians everywhere, but I think this most directly correlates or applies to Christians in the local body in which we are members of one another. It's why getting together and watching people be baptized as a body is so rich and powerful, can be, I should say, should be. When we see the church for what it is and baptism for what it is, there is such a unity in this one baptism Paul talks about in Ephesians 4. We share in the, same, we share in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Listen to this connection Paul makes in Galatians 3, verses 27 and 28. He says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is therefore neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The passage is, this passage is not saying there's no such thing as male and female, right? We're, we don't buy into the transgendered stuff in our culture. That's madness. God created us male and female. So it's not saying there's no such thing as that. It's not saying there's no such thing as Jew or Greek. That ethnicity doesn't, is no thing. Rather, it's saying that these distinctions don't add to or detract from our unity in Christ. We are united in Christ. We are one in Christ. We're baptized into Christ in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Think of how scant... Think of how scandalous it would, it would have been in the early church. If you would have gone to a city like Galatia or Corinth or Antioch, these cities with lots of different kinds of peoples there, and you had attended a church gathering where they were remembering the Lord's Supper, they were observing the Supper, or you had gone to a baptism service where people were being baptized. This is in the Roman Empire where there were lots of, there were really, really clear class distinctions and ethnic distinctions. You would have come to this Christian gathering. You would have seen all different kinds of peoples. You would have seen people with dark skin and light skin. You would have seen, you would have seen slave, young slave men and wealthy, middle-aged women. You would have seen all these people together eating the one body and drinking from the one cup together. You would have seen them baptized, celebrating this one baptism we have in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Celebrating the saving work of the one true God. Amen? In closing, I just want to address, I just want to, I want to talk about a few different kinds of people here today, generally speaking. And I want to address you this morning. To those who have been saved and baptized, and you know that you're, you're trusting Christ, you believe in Christ, you, he, is, he is your savior, you, you bear his name and you do that gladly, not perfectly, but gladly. You're, you're not, you trust in Jesus to forgive all your sins and you want to follow Jesus and you've been baptized. 
I just say this, remember these things. Remember these things. Remember the Trinity in salvation. The Father chose you before the foundation of the world. In the fullness of time, he sent his Son to redeem you. And when you believed, he sent his Spirit into your heart so that you now cry out to God as your Father. Remember that you're not your own. You're not your own. When you get up and leave here today, it's not about you working out your purposes and plans. You now exist for God. You're his. And you need to submit your life to him in surrender to his purposes. Let your prayer be this. I read this. I have a prayer book called The Valley of Vision and I love this prayer. It says, it says this, let this be your prayer. Let me live and pray as one baptized in the threefold name, in the triune name of God. That's how we ought to live. That's how we ought to pray. That's how we ought to do everything. Remember that you not only belong to Christ. Oh, someone's back there. You not only belong to Christ, you also belong to the body. Listen, you belong to one another. If you're a member, if you were one body, individually members of one another, there is a sense in which there's mutual um, possession of each other, not in a controlling way, right? But it's like, you belong to me and I belong to you. We're a body. You're not your own. To the unsaved. <laughs> not sure how they got back there, but to the, to the unsaved, to someone who came in here today and you maybe even assumed you were a Christian. Maybe you just have always assumed, well, I kind of believe. I believe in God. I, I believe the message, you know, of the gospel. I, I believe Jesus came and I believe that he died on the cross. But if I asked you to explain the gospel or if I pressed you about whether or not Christ is Lord, like you bow your knee to him and he's, now the master, you're not sure. You could say yes. I only have one thing to say to you today, and I say this in love, and I, and I do love you. Repent and believe in Christ and be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And to those who have repented and believed in Christ, and have not been baptized. In love to you today, I say, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Have you been baptized since you have come to faith in Christ? Have you been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? What are you waiting for? Be baptized. And we're gonna have a baptism service in about four weeks, five weeks. June 27th, all right? June 27th, we're going to have a baptism service. And so, come talk to me if that is you, okay? If you need to be baptized, come visit with me. We want you to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit in obedience to Christ. Amen? Let's, let's pray. Holy Father, we worship you.